Okay, so we are systematically making our way through the book of 1 John. I was not here last week. Um, and if you didn't hear or if you care at all about where I was, I was actually in San Diego. Um, and I brought Tyler Jones with me, so we were both gone last week. And the weather was super nice. It was like 80 and sunny. And we rode some waves. And uh, more importantly, we listened to really good Bible teaching. And <clears throat> I was just really encouraged. I was really encouraged to have the opportunity to be around other youth pastors who are kind of like me, like-minded anyways. And needless to say, when I was there, I thought of you guys tons. Um, truthfully, thought of you guys a lot. So, Michael Heemstra last week talked out of, uh, spoke out of Ephesians chapter two. I heard. I have not listened to the message, but I heard good things. So I'm grateful for him to do that. But um, let me begin tonight by reading the passage that we'll be looking at, and then I'll pray. We'll talk, and then we'll head into small groups and good stuff like that. So, if you have your Bible open to 1 John, we're going to be starting in chapter 2. We're already in chapter 2. There's only five chapters, so that's kind of cool. But chapter 1 is really short. So, uh, 1 John chapter 2, look down at verse 1 with me. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Would you pray with me? God, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant word. God, I'm just asking that you help us to calm our busy minds, um, to settle our just heavy hearts, Lord. God, I pray that as we just seek to understand your word better, Lord, that your spirit would convict us of sin, remind us of grace, and just elevate the person of Jesus Christ. God, help, help me in my words, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a good thing to be assured of things. Um, if you're familiar with Gary Chapman's Five Love Languages, um, everyone interprets being loved in a different way, and he kind of gives five big ones. And so some of that is um, um, physical touch. So some people feel very loved when they get like a hug or a good pat in the back or holding hands. Um, other people um, feel loved when they receive gifts. And so getting a nice gift, a well-thought-out gift, makes them feel very loved and appreciated. Other people, and this is what I would say my love language is, is, is verbal affirmation. Hey, Aaron, 
Hey, I saw you over there doing that thing, and I just want you to know that that was super cool. Um, man, I was just so encouraged by that and what you did, and I just want to say keep the good work. You know, keep your money. I don't want your gift and physical touch. Yeah, hey, give me a fist bump, whatever. But um, verbal affirmation, something, just even in my own marriage, we have to realize how we feel loved is by just saying, hey, I really appreciate you doing that. Um, that helped a lot. Verbal affirmation. And so by me saying that, as I'm admitting that I like to be assured of things. I like to be like, uh, hey, I just preached up in big church. Uh, did I just preach heresy? And for someone to kind of assure me, like, hey, no, that was actually really good. And you preach the Bible and you preach Christ. And, I mean, yeah, you, you suck at communicating, but you didn't preach heresy, right? Okay, at least I'm assured of that. Crickets. Um, no, thanks. Not loud enough, I guess. Um, because you weren't laughing because you all think it's true. Like, oh, he knows now. <laughs> okay, I got a few more there. All right. Um, so it's good to be assured of something. It's good to be assured that if you're doing homework a certain way um, for a long time and someone says, oh, you've been doing it the right way. And I like to play golf, and so uh, I'd go to the putting green, and I would just sit there and putt. And I remember my older brother, I was telling him, like, oh, I'm getting really good at putting. I've been going to the putting greens a lot. And he just said, be careful that you practice the right thing. Because if you go to the putting green and you learn to putt a really funky way for four hours, you just kind of instilled bad habits. So you have to be doing putting rightly. If you, so you have to practice well, in essence. And so I kind of asked some guy randomly, like, hey, is this kind of right, you know, the shoulders thing? And he's like, he assured me that I was practicing right. We all like to be assured. And so when I read 1 John, and this isn't the only really section where this theme comes up. Um, if, you, if you kind of just look at the middle of verse 5, he says, says this, By this we may know that we are in him. By this we may know. We may be assured, in other words, that we are in him. See, what John is doing here is he is trying to give us different tests, different qualifications, different characteristics of us being assured that we actually have been born again. He doesn't want you to double guess or, or second guess your salvation. He wants you to be confident that, yes, my name is written in the book of everlasting life. I am a Christian. Jesus' blood is atoned for my sins, and I don't have to doubt that. But here's the thing. I think even the most well-known and longest of Christians at times doubt they're Christians. And so this is a story about John Wesley. John Wesley was a very famous preacher. In fact, we just sang one of his songs. Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing. I mean, the, the original song is really cheesy and funky. Um, we kind of sang it a different way. But he wrote that song. He wrote another song you might know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and, and a lot of other hymns. And he's a great, famous preacher. And so there's a story that says, After John Wesley had been preaching for some time, someone went up to him and said, Are you sure, Mr. Wesley, of your salvation? Well, he answered, Jesus Christ died for the whole world. Yes, we all believe that, but are you sure that you are saved. Wesley replied that he was sure that provision had been made for his salvation. But are you sure, Wesley, that you are saved? And the story goes that it went like an arrow to his heart. 
And he had no rest or power until the question was settled of whether or not he was actually really, truly saved. Many Christians, or a better way of saying that, many men and women go month after month, year after year, without power or rest because they do not know for sure where they stand with Christ. They are not sure of their own footing for eternity. Some other people once wrote about this issue and they said that regarding our own salvation, when we understand that it is settled, that we understand the steadfast love of Christ for us, that he was as bold as a lion. But if that hope became eclipsed, as in if he lost that boldness, he was fearful and afraid that he was disqualified for any service. So my argument is that many people that fill up churches every single Sunday are disqualified for service because they are continually doubting their own salvation. How can you have the confidence and the power to reflect the gospel in your life when you aren't sure of yourself that it has saved you? How can you live a life that is just vehemently against sin if you are not sure of the fact that you are in fact a Christian? Here's my challenge to you. If, if, if at some point, if you never have considered if I truly am a Christian, I think there's a little bit where wisdom speaks in that we should think about that. Do I actually, have I put my faith in Christ? Do I see a change in my life? Do I believe the right things? And so what John does for us in this passage, and what I like about it, is he sets very strong boundaries about what it means to be a Christian. In fact, what I would say, 1 John 2, 1 through 6, is just a crash course on what Christianity is. It's the basic beliefs of our faith. And what a lot of people were doing back then, when he was writing to this audience, these false teachers, they would try to distort the gospel. They would say, I have no problem with sin. Or now that I'm a Christian, I don't sin anymore. Or really, we're not that bad. And so looking at this passage, here's what I'm convinced is the main point. That those who truly trust in Christ keep his commandments. Those who truly trust in Christ keep his commandments. Now do you notice the word I, said, I used there? I said those who truly trust in Christ. I hope to, by the end of tonight, kind of wiggle out the confusion that we can kind of just say we believe in Jesus, say we have faith, and kind of show on the flip side of what true faith looks like. And so in this passage, there are three different truths that John says that we must know about the Christian life. About the Christian faith, there are three things that we must know. And I think in that, we can see that those who truly trust in Christ keep his commandments. I, my, my goal for you is that tomorrow when you wake up, if someone went up to you, like they went up to John Wesley and said, 
Are you sure that you are saved? Now, with all boldness and confidence, you can say, absolutely. Absolutely. So, here are the three things that we must know. We'll start with the first one. We must know who Jesus is. If you look down at verse 1, he says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, pause. Again, John likes to give a lot of purpose statements, okay? So if you think back, we didn't talk about it last week because I was gone, but the two weeks before that, we talked a lot about the reasons why John is writing this book. Okay, one of them is for the very purpose that he would assure those who are actually Christians that they in fact are Christians. But two, he's saying, I am writing these things to you in chapter one that you may have fellowship with us. Because if you have fellowship with us, we know then that you have fellowship with God. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin is another thing in verse one. Now, think for a second with me. Okay, think. Who wrote this book? John. What else do we know that John wrote in the New Testament? The book of the, the Gospel of John, okay? Now, there is a unique story in the Gospel of John that is not in any other Gospel. Okay, so there's four Gospels. John's Gospel is probably the most different by far than the other three. But there's this really great story that I love. Um, I use that as an illustration a lot. But there's a woman caught in adultery. Which means that she probably was caught in the act of having sex with someone who wasn't her husband. And they brought her to Jesus, which means that they probably brought her naked. And they threw her down in front of anyone. And they say, Jesus, what do you say about this thing? And he had this really great story where Jesus kind of bends down in the sand and he starts writing. And we don't know what he's writing. But slowly but surely, everyone kind of just left. And he looks at this woman, who's probably, again, just caught in the act. There she was. He says, is there anyone here to condemn you? She says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus looks at his disciples in that same story and he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, John in his gospel writes that story in order to get these words out of Jesus, go and sin no more. That once you experience the grace of Jesus and you become a Christian, you are not someone who walks in darkness. But you are someone who walks in the light. So John here is kind of, I think, what a great parallel passage to, to kind of flood into this. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He is not saying that one day you can never sin ever again. But he's saying, I want you to sin less. I want you to be different. I want you that before you were a Christian, you did whatever you want. All you cared was about yourself. Now that you're a Christian, to follow Christ and to not sin. But before I move on, really quickly, those first three words. My little children. I absolutely love that. And he does that a lot through this letter. Because you understand... He's not just lecturing them. He's not just in a classroom. He's, just not, he's not just writing some letters to some random people. He has this fatherly, pastoral heart. That he, you can almost like, those words help you find like, just how he's writing these things. Like, listen, my little ones, children, 
I'm not writing these things just so that you have something to read or just so that 2,000 years from now a youth pastor can bore you to death by talking about it, right? But I'm writing these things in order that you may not sin. You know, my, my uncle Marty, I didn't know him much. He died when I was in kindergarten. He died of brain cancer. And he left um, one daughter, my cousin Kaylee. Uh, she's just three months older than me. And I remember um, he left a tape for her. She was only like five or six when, um, when he passed away. And in this tape, I mean, you can imagine like, you're not going to see your daughter walk down the aisle. You're not going to see your daughter go to college or do any of these things. And, and he's writing this tape, trying to like show his heart. And I remember one time my grandma showed me this tape. And I just remember it just, he was talking about Jesus. And he just repeated, oh, oh, that you would know the love for Jesus in your life. Oh, that you would know. And, and he's got this, this fatherly heart trying to communicate his daughter who would one day watch this tape that you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And I, I, just, I, I think of that kind of when I, when I read this. My little children, I write these things so that you may not sin. Now, some very foolish people think that because he says this, that John thinks that we're not to sin anymore. But look what he says right after that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So John is writing here, trying to under, help us understand that, one, I, I don't want you to sin anymore, that, that when you come to Christ, you sin less. But I want you to know that when you do, who is in your court? I want you to know the one person that will help you when you sin. I want you to know about the one person that is the only person who can help you get out of the predicament of your sin. And so what John does is he kind of conjures up courtroom imagery. Did anyone do the field trip and they went to the courtroom and they saw the dude? And did you guys do that as a field trip in this state? Tim, yeah? Okay. Has anyone been to a courtroom? Has anyone watched Law and Order? A few more hands. Man, you guys are killing me here. All right. Um, I was in sixth grade, and this dude, he got drunk and crashed into a tree, and he was like five times over the legal limit. And it was like all of the sixth graders just watching this dude get his sentence. It's like, and he's just like staring at us. It's the most awkward <laughs> thing ever. But hey, I, 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 I saw what a courtroom looked like. And so if you look at this word, sometimes words are really, really important. Obviously, all words are important, but some words are more important. He says this. But if anyone does sin, we have in, what's that next word in your Bible? We have in advocate. Okay. Now what's fascinating about that word is that only John in the entire New Testament is the person to use that word. And he actually uses it mostly in his own gospel. And it's the word meaning paraclete or helper. And typically, John has used that word in the context where Jesus was speaking that I must go back up to my Father in order that I can send the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And so John is saying, the one thing that you must know, if you want to have assurance of your faith, the person you must know is your helper, the paraclete, Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's our helpful, he's our he's our, our helper, our advocate with their father, and he is the Messiah Jesus, the righteous. 
Now, so again, I, I mentioned he brought up that courtroom imagery. In that, he's trying to say, you, right now, every single one of you, myself included, every time we sin, we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. But guess what? Jesus, he was righteous. He lived a completely perfect life. And so the imagery is that when we would come up before God and before Jesus, we had, we had no excuse for our sin. We stand guilty before him. Jesus now says, hey, I died for their sin. Hey, Father, I love that one. Hey, Father, I know they keep on sinning, but my blood covers all of their sins. Jesus is the person who is the only person who can allow us to have a relationship with God again. I'm writing these things so you may not sin, but when you do sin, you have to understand who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is your helper. He is your advocate. You see, I'll be honest with you. Can I be honest with you? Just nod your head yes. Sometimes in church, I get super bored. <laughs> Not the thing I was going to get amen on, but I'll take it. <laughs> amen. Like even today, John 3.16. I'm just like focusing on how loud the rain was on the roof. And it's like, that's why I kind of like, I pause during that song like, man, how do I really feel marveled today by this? And in one sense, like, regardless of how I feel, this is still good. Regardless of, of how I think towards God and towards Christianity, like, the gospel is true regardless of how I feel and whether or not I believe in it. And whether or not I'm actually living out my faith. But Jesus is God regardless of what you think and what I think. But sometimes I think we are so callous towards truth that we have to be super wowed or amazed for it to actually do anything constructive for our heart. Because guys, it is incredible news to think and to know that Jesus is the one person that every time we sin against God, he will plead our case. It is a tremendous thought to think that Jesus, because of his love for us, would die for you. You would see, even greater than this thought is that Jesus has never lost any interest in any single one of you. See, a lot of times we focus on the last words that Jesus said on the cross. And one of the big ones is we say, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But do you know what Jesus was not saying? He's saying, it is not finished with you. My love and care and support and deep desire to know you is not finished. Just, can you just like, can we all just try to open up our hearts to the, to the great wonder and meaning of that truth? That God has not lost any interest in you? That he's excited by you? That he loves you? And he, he, he legitimately and genuinely sings over you and he rejoices over you and, and he just wants you to be close with him. And, and, and Jesus is saying, I love him. And yes, they, they make mistakes and they sin, but I, I love that person. 
And John is saying, you, got, you have to know this, Jesus. You, you have to know that great love and that great truth that, that we have a God who looks at us despite all of our moral perfections and says, Oh, I care for him so much. You know, I'm a pastor, but sometimes I just need someone to put their arm around me and to remind me of this. For someone to say, Aaron, Aaron, you're forgiven. Aaron, Christ has done it. You know, I almost think like one of my goals in preaching for the rest of my life is to, for like every sermon, just to say, you're forgiven in Christ. You don't have to carry the, the shame or, the, or the, the, if you sinned an hour before you came to youth group or to church, you're forgiven in Christ. We must know who Jesus is. That's the first great truth that we must know. We must know who Jesus is. So verse 2, it gets on to our next point, that we must know what Jesus has done. And so he picks up in verse 2, he says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now this verse is a little tricky. It causes a lot of controversy. Um, you might even read that and think like, what, what is he talking about here? Uh, that's, that seems kind of weird. And so now the, the imagery that he's using kind of switches from courtroom and it kind of goes to the imagery of the temple. Now, if you know anything about the temple, about you know, how the Israelites worship God, they have this big temple, and in the back of the temple is where the presence of God was. But what they need to do is they need to get a nice little lamb. And it's funny, like um, we had a few friends who live over there, somewhere over there, I don't know, um, Alpine Hills area. And their, their ewes had little lambs, okay? So we took our, took our kids over there so they can pet the little baby lambs. And, I, and I'm like, I'm not around livestock that much, but then I, I started like thinking about how this little lamb would grow up and the Israelites would take this lamb, chop off the head, and you think like... Probably wouldn't be in one final swoop or anything like that. But what they would do is they would have to have a blood sacrifice once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And so this word, propitiation, that's like a big kind of scary sounding biblical word. And you're like, what does that mean? And whether or not your translation uses that word or something else, the word really just kind of means um, um, atoning sacrifice, okay? So the Greek usage of the word outside of the New Testament typically had the meaning of the removal of some type of God's wrath, okay? So when God would see the blood spilt, the blood would kind of cover over the sins of the people and that would create again a clean space where they can worship God perfectly, right? So in essence, if, if God is perfect and we are not, we can no longer have relationship with him, but the blood that would spill would kind of cover some of the sin and we can now have a relationship with God. But with Jesus... His blood is the forever sacrifice, and His blood forever removes God's wrath, and now we can have a relationship with God all the time and experience His presence and His beauty and His majesty. And so we have to understand what Jesus has done, that He has not just lived a really good life, but He has conquered. He has done something for us in order that we can actually have a relationship with God every single day. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning 
sacrifice. And I'm immediately, immediately reminded of all of the youth conferences and all of the, the program camps that I went to growing up as a kid. Because here, here, here's what the messages were like. Super funny guy. Says a lot of jokes. Starts maybe talking about his own life and how he, he used to smoke weed and drink and had a lot of sex. But then I found Jesus and my life changed. And then he would get really deep in his voice and still throw a few jokes in there. And he would say, hey, life is full of a lot of hurt and pain. And you're probably having a lot of pain and you probably have a lot of trash in your life. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And like by the droves, these kids who would hear this emotional message and hear some really sad story about this guy's life who, I don't know, lost a loved one and um, life is hard, come to Jesus. And he like, pause, time out, flag on the play. Wait, what? Come to Jesus for what? What do you mean? Like, just come to Jesus. Life is hard. What about sin? What about repentance? What about putting your faith and your trust in Jesus? What about the fact that we all stand before God? You can't just... What are you talking about? Come to Jesus. And the very most basic block of our faith is understanding this word, propitiation, that Jesus came to save sinners. Life is very hard. But guess what? More than your... You have bigger problems than just some of the temporary things that face your life. Your biggest problem is what will you do with your sin? And how I grieve, how I grieve so many youth ministries and youth conferences and youth messages that just hook, line, and sink your kids into the door, into what? Into nothing that holds any weight. John is describing this atoning sacrifice of Jesus and what he has done by saying this very unique thing, that he has died for the sins of the whole world. Now again, this is the part where a lot of people get confused on. And, and here's where I just want to kind of talk a little bit of headiness with you. Um, this verse has a lot of people scratching their heads about wondering, what, what does John mean? What do you mean? Like, Jesus died for everyone? The sins of the whole entire world? And kind of unfortunately, a lot of people look at this verse and they come up with this very unfortunate teaching of universalism. That eventually, every single people in all faiths, whether it be um, Islam or Judaism or Christianity or no faith at all, would be saved by Jesus. Okay, one sense, you just look at the context of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 and you can clearly see that John does not really think that everyone is a Christian or will be a Christian. I mean, part of the fact that he wants to give you assurance of your faith is to, to say that some people really don't have faith. And he goes on later in chapter 2 and chapter 3 to say that some people left our, our community, left our gospel church because they never really were Christians in the first place. But really, if, if we understand this verse, that he died for the sins of the whole world, John here has in mind... The entire world, but not 
every single person. He's talking about all of the cosmos, okay? Jesus died for this, the whole entire world. So he's not really thinking in a universalistic sense, but rather in terms of sufficiency. This is a big difference, okay? In essence, what he is saying is that Jesus' death and its sacrifice was sufficient to deal with everybody's sin. And every person in the world who came to him in faith. So let me, let me summarize this a little bit now. Jesus' death is available to all, but it is not applied to all. Jesus' death is available to every single person. Every single person has the opportunity to be saved by the precious blood of Jesus. That's why when we sing those songs about the blood of the Lamb, it's such a great picture of this. That Jesus creates a clean space for us to have a relationship with God forever. And not just temporary. But, guess what? This is not applied to everyone. And so in Reformed theology, we call this limited atonement. Where the, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is only towards those who in fact are Christians. Or another way of saying that, to the elect. So, But here's the great thing about this verse that I'm thinking. I, I think about this verse. If you ever think for a second, if you ever think for a second that Jesus couldn't have died for you, that you're too insignificant, that you are too sinful, or you are too bad or wrong, this verse tells you that the cross of Jesus is great enough to cover everybody. And that its benefits can be enjoyed by all who embrace Christ. I have such a problem currently with Facebook. As Christians, we are of all people who realize that I am a sinner who has been given grace and who did not do anything to achieve my own salvation. God's grace was given to me as a free gift and I realize now that my sin, if it was not taken care of, I would have been in eternal punishment. Therefore, as, as Christians, we know that we are people who are needy, who need grace, and that humbles us, that makes us realize that no one is better than us. I am like Paul, who agrees that I am the chief of all sinners. Therefore, when Christians publicly shame people for certain sins, it does a few things. It does a few things, a few very harmful things. One, it says, there are certain sins that if you do, you'll always be looked as shameful. Facebook erupted over Donald Trump's comments about how horrible a person he is. Now, do not understand, don't misinterpret my words. The actions and the comments of Donald Trump are very sad and very wrong. But by publicly pointing out other people's sins, do you know what we're doing? We're saying to every single person who struggles with that sin or any sexual sin that if you struggle with this, you are a disgrace and a shameful and a bad person. You are outside the grace of God. See, the answer to looking at other people's sin is never to point the finger and say, how dare you? 
But it's to, it's to realize, man, that's just too bad. And you need Jesus. Now, I, I'm not trying to condone anyone to who vote for whoever, you know, like maybe Donald Trump is disqualified for his presidency because of that. But it's not because of how dare you. It's with a broken heart and out of pity saying, man, I really wish you respected all people the same. And maybe because of that, you have lost my vote. You see the difference? Lastly, John's third point is this. We must know what Jesus commands. I'm sorry, I spent most of my time on those first two points, and it's supposed to be most of the time on this point. But here's the thing. If it's amazing to know that Jesus stands in our place, that he is our advocate and our helper, these things must mean something for us. See, last time we talked about this thing that, that God is white. And what we meant by that is that God, there's no moral imperfection, that he is pure, he is beauty, everything in, in him is right and good. And because of that, if we have a relationship with him, we must not walk in darkness. Now, John here kind of opens up and, and he tries to expand that a little bit more. If we are to walk in the light and not in the dark, here is what that kind of looks like. That we must know what Jesus commands of us. And so in verses 3 through 6, he says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, in quotes, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Let me summarize what he's saying here. Two things we're saying. First, the one who walks in the light follows the example of Christ. The one who walks in the light is the one who follows Christ's example. And two, keeps Christ's commands. See, I have to ask myself this question. When he says at the very bottom, uh, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, that's a really fascinating thing to say because like Jesus walked on water. Jesus carried a cross and died on it. Jesus healed people. Jesus rose little girls from the dead. Am I supposed to walk like that? Am I supposed to be like a little mini, miniature Jesus in which I can do all the things that he did? Not quite. But what's he really trying to get at? Well, first thing he's saying, if we are really someone, if you want to be assured of your faith, if you really want to know that you know this Christ and know what he has done, that you will obey him. A good way of looking at that is John 15. Jesus is looking at his disciples, and therefore he's looking at us, and he says this, If you love me, obey me. If you really are someone who has been changed, who has been born again, who has been transformed, this is the primary mark of how you will know. Obedience. See, I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I've been a pastor now for a number of years. I grew up in the church. I was thinking just today of how easily it is for me to know what to say. It is extremely easy for me to go to any small group, to get up on stage, to be up here, to say something that makes you have your, your hair stick up on the back of your neck. But do I live it? And John's, John is trying to say, like, listen, uh, before you know the right things, before you, you sing the right things, 
you will be known and you will have assurance of your faith by how well you obey. Let me ask you the question. If you, if you look back in your life a year ago, do you see a more vigilant approach to your obedience to Jesus? Do you feel like you obey more now than you did a year ago? Do you realize the importance of understanding that, that the Bible is not just an option or an idea, but it's, it's something that we're actually commanded to do? Do you look at the Great Commission and think like, oh, that's cool, maybe one day? Do you understand all of the, the commands to be part of a local church and to submit to, to leadership and to, to care for the brothers and sisters around you? Do, you? do you desire to follow Christ in those ways? I look at this passage and I see the strong verbs that John uses. He says, we keep. Whoever keeps, we ought to walk. Very strong verbs to describing the person who truly knows Jesus and what he has done is the person who walks as Jesus walked. As James would say in his book, show me your faith through your good works. What John would say here is, show me your faith through your obedience to Christ's commands. If you have little concern about obedience to Christ, I don't think you're a Christian. I only say that because that is what John is saying here. But he who does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. If you have no care or thought throughout your day of am I being true to God's word? Am I being faithful to Christ my Savior? He says it right here. That you don't have the assurance that you so desperately want. Let me summarize a little bit tonight of looking at the Heidelberg Catechism. Right? What is true faith? The Catechism says like this. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true, but is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. True faith in Christ leads to a deep-rooted assurance. And here's what it also does. It produces a desire to obey Jesus. It is lame and obvious to say that we're all going to make mistakes and sin. Probably a lot of you have sinned against me just while I preached tonight. But here's the thing. If we, if we look to Christ and see that he is our helper and he's our advocate, that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and we, we looked at what he's done, the response should be an ultimate sense of gratitude and thankfulness, which will lead to the rightful obedience of his word. See, maybe to quote Tim Keller right before we go to small groups, religion says this, 
if I obey, if I do a bunch of good things, if, if I'm a good moral person, then I'll be accepted by my God or my religion. But do you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that there is Jesus who loved you and died for you even when you didn't even know it. And because of that, now I will obey. We do not obey God's commands because we have to, but because we want to. And it is in your obedience, and it is your obedience to, to Christ's word that shows you that you truly have experienced who Jesus is and have trusted in him for your salvation. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this time in your word, and I just pray that during small groups, Lord, that we would be honest and transparent, and we would seek the well-being of those around us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.